Let me pray for us, and let's get in the Word. We're going to be finishing our series on true justice today. Father God, thank you. Lord, even when you speak us to us hard things, Lord, and today again, we're going to be in a portion of Scripture that is um, easy to quote, but difficult to obey. And Lord, I pray that we would be a people who love you well enough to obey you and trust you in this very countercultural way of living. Father, would you uh, speak through your word this morning, help us to hear from you and respond to you in love. We pray these things in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus. Amen. My, uh, my dad had a lot of sayings that he used regularly, things I heard so many times that they're burned into my head. If you lost a game or something didn't go your way, uh, he'd, say, he'd, say, um, he'd say, some days you eat the bear and some days the bear eats you, right? And then um, if, if you did something that was not up to standard, uh, he'd, say, he'd say, Gary, he goes, you never do anything half... Uh, Never do anything halfway. Let's say that's what he used to say. Never do anything halfway. And then his, li- his advice for life on the mean streets of suburban New Jersey was this. He said, don't ever hit anybody first. But if somebody hits you, you hit them back twice as hard. This last piece of advice seemed pretty good to me. And, but before I knew Jesus, I, I took his advice and I, I kind of maneuvered it around a little bit. When he said, if somebody hits you first, I'm like, well, maybe if someone, you know, maybe they didn't hit me, but maybe they bumped me. Maybe they, maybe they bumped me accidentally. You see, I, I had a couple of an anger problem when I was younger, and I was looking for trouble more than I ought. And so sometimes if I felt slighted by someone, or if I thought maybe they were going to hit me later, or they were annoying me, a lot of times I would be the one who initiated this. Oh, they started with me. And I turned his advice, and I turned it into permission for my anger to do whatever I wanted it to do. I remember once being home with my older brother, and some of you know what it's like to have an older brother. Mine is two years older. My, my older brother would call me names. He didn't just call me like regular names like you're a doofus. He would get creative. He would use things he'd learned in school that I hadn't learned yet. I remember one in particular. He used to call me a plebeian. He's like, you're a plebeian. Now, my wife is laughing because she knows what that is, but no one else is. A plebeian is the word for like a regular Roman citizen. But I didn't know what that was. He's like, you're such a plebeian. I'm like, I am not, which is true. Even though we're Italian, Rome has unfortunately fallen, and uh, so I'm not a regular citizen, right? But I so stop it. He's like, you're a plebeian, you're a plebeian. I'm like, stop it, stop it. And one time I got so frustrated with him, and maybe you've been in this place as a kid, I, he's my big brother. I couldn't beat him up. You know, I could try to surprise him. But one time I got so frustrated that I ran into the kitchen. We were home alone a lot. My mom had passed away. We were home by ourselves all the time. And so I ran into the kitchen and I grabbed the big chef's knife. And I wave it at my brother thinking this will shut him up. And it doesn't. He goes, what are you going to do with that, big man? How about that, plebeian? And I was like, Aah! and I took the knife and I threw it at my brother. Big chef's knife. I was 10 years old, but I, I was a baseball pitcher. I had a pretty good arm. This was not a soft toss. This was a killing throw. And I missed his head by about this much. And it hit into the wall and stuck right there, like quivering. I remember my brother and I both turned around and freaked out. We were like, oh no, 
oh no, I'm like, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And then we went, dad's going to see a knife in the wall. He doesn't notice a lot, but he'll notice a knife in the wall, right? And we went into uh, covering up mode. But look, when we feel like we've been the victim of injustice, when things have been pressing down on us, oftentimes we react with violence, we react with revenge. And that's a question, right? What are we supposed to do when we are the victims of injustice? In this series we've been doing, we call True Justice, we focused on a few things. The first week we asked the question, are we the cause of injustice? And, and oftentimes we are, that we're committing injustices against others. And, and how do we handle that? How do we repent of that behavior and surrender that and consider that we ourselves are doing injustice? And then the second week, we talked about, well, what about if we see injustice in other things, in, in broken systems, in other relationships? Well, we as Christians are called to stand up for the oppressed, to look out for the poor and the broken, to release those who are held in slavery or under the yoke of oppression. And then last week, uh, D. Will talked to us out of James 1. He focuses on our identity. He says, you're a Christ follower that we're called uh, to an identity uh, in Christ. That we're not double-minded. We're not to have one foot in the world and one in the kingdom, but to commit to this kingdom living all the time, not one standard here, another standard there. And so with that in mind, I want to close our series by talking about, well, what do we do when the injustice, or we think the injustice, is against us? How do Christ followers respond? And I think it's a valid question for our times. I think a lot of people would say, if you said, are you suffering any injustice? I think a lot of people would say yes. They say, oh, this is, they're coming after me and my kind. And those are maybe people on opposite sides of the ledger, and they're like, man, they're coming after me, and, and what are we supposed to do? Roll over and be, no, no, we've got to stand up for the, and we think of ourselves as being in the right. And what are we supposed to do if we face injustice. The Apostle Paul addresses this exact situation in Romans chapter 12, and this, this is his letter to the church in Rome. Now remember that the early church is living under the oppression of a corrupt government, a corrupt empire. They are not the majority. They don't have the power. Uh, it is used against them over and over again. And how are they supposed to bear up in that situation under this government? And also, what are they supposed to do when people who are more powerful than them, who have more money or a better position than them, or maybe just a different place in the family, what are you supposed to do when someone oppresses you? And so the Apostle Paul uh, addresses this in Romans chapter 12, and he begins this section with a basic approach of a Christian to life. He says, let's remember what we're supposed to be like in general. If we're Christ followers, how are we supposed to interact with the world? What posture do we take to the world? And here's what he says. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 9. He says, our basic posture to the world begins with love. Verse 9, he says, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. He talks about sincere love, a pure love, a love that hasn't been mixed with anything. He goes, that's who a Christ follower is. A Christ follower yearns to be, uh, desires to see the world through God's eyes of love, to see with God's values, to call good what God calls good and evil what God calls evil. In verse 10, he talks about how we relate to each other. He says, be devoted to one another in love. 
Honor one another above yourselves. He says, being under others focused is a hallmark of a Christ follower. We're not self-promoters. Christ followers point out the good in other people. They, they celebrate it. It's one of the surest signs of a Christ follower is that they're legitimately pleased by other people's success. There's no room in the Christ followers lexicon for the phrase, must be nice. One of my least favorite phrases, by the way. You see someone else's success, someone else's good thing, and you go, must be nice. Just drawing the attention back to yourself and the things that you think you've suffered. So the Christ followers so content, so full of what they have in Jesus that they can celebrate the good that happens to other people. God bless you in that. That's awesome. What a great blessing. Verse 11, he talks about this Christ follower again. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. He says Christ's followers are so full of love that Jesus has poured out for us that we're energized to be about the Lord's business. We're people who love to do what's good. We're hopeful people. We believe in a God that's going to come through. We're not easily defeated. We trust God's timing when things get hard. We regularly, with great trust in our hearts, go to him in prayer. We ask him to, to move us from our way of seeing to his way of seeing in every situation. We trust his provision, his values. We're generous. We're welcoming. These are the people we want to be, right? I'm not saying every Christ follower lives like this. I'm saying most of us who are in Christ would say, that's how I want to live. I admire those who live like that. I yearn to be that kind of person, this, this generate generous person, this, this patient person, this, this, um, who, someone who has hospitality and, and, and serves with energy and loves to do good. We all say, I'm on board with that. I mean, how many would be against that? I mean, who, who wants to serve the poor? Yes. Right? Who wants to be compassionate to those who are broken? Yes. Who wants to come alongside those who've been oppressed and forgotten? Yes, we're there. We're there for that. And then he gets to verse 14. And he says, he says this hard word. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Not just endure persecution with patience, but bless those who persecute you. You know, I sat with this verse for a while. I said, what if the only way... He said, how do you know someone's a Christian? He said, what if the only way you could know someone was a Christian is that they blessed those who persecuted them. How many Christians that you know fit that description? It made me think about uh, way back in the day, uh, 2002, I was working in uh, youth ministry, and I had a couple of real skater kids in my youth ministry. I am not a skater in any way, uh, but, there, but these, I had a couple of kids who were really into it, and so I'd hang around with them, go to skate parks sometimes. Um, I've, never, I've been on a skateboard twice. It ended poorly uh, three times somehow. Three out of two ended poorly. Uh, but I remember being out with a couple of these skater kids, and, uh, you know, it was like that 2002, there was a lot of skater culture happening. I don't know if you remember that Avril Lavigne song, Skater Boy. You know, skater boy, see you later, boy. No? Nobody. Okay. And everybody kind of wore like baggy pants and sideways trucker hats. Like that was a thing. And I remember we were out one time and I saw these other kids that were dressed exactly like the kids that I had in my group. And I was like, oh, look, there's some other skater kids. And this one kid, Jordan, goes, he goes those aren't skaters. 
And I was like, dude, yeah, they are. I'm like, and skaters, they've got the, the, the vans and the baggy pants and the sideways. They're, they're skaters. They're holding skateboards. They're clearly skaters. And he goes, they're not skaters, man. And I was like, why? why? He goes, look at their elbows and their knees. And I look at their elbows and their knees. I'm like, dude, they appear to be normal elbows and knees. I don't know what you're talking about. He goes, now look at mine. And he held up his elbows and he showed me his knees. And they're covered in scars and bruises. And he goes, this is what skaters look like, man. Right? Because the only way to be a real skater, apparently, is to not wear the protection and to fall a lot. Right? There's the marks of a real skater. Real skaters have paid the price. And it made me think about the marks of a Christ follower. It's not just the outside looks. It's not just uh, the stuff that everyone would agree on in our culture. It's the countercultural. It's the counter hard stuff. It's the, it's the pray for those who persecute you. It's, it's the love your enemies. How do you know if you're the real deal with Jesus? Do you love those who persecute you? Is it true in your life that Jesus has so changed you so remade you that it comes out in your character that you bless those who persecute you? Why would this be true of Christ followers? Well, Paul's going to get there, but first he keeps talking about character. Verse 15. He says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Christ's followers are people of compassion, right? We meet others in their joy or their sorrow. We're peace bringers. We, we live humble lives. Pride is what gets us into disagreements and arguments. Pride leads us to division. But love, love, love sparks humility and harmony he says, compassion extends not just to those who mourn, not just to those who are in low position, but compassion extends even to those who are our enemies. Paul gets even more specific. Verse 17, he says this. He says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. He says, we who are in Christ are not in the revenge business. Because it's not our job to judge or to punish. You see, we're too imperfect for that job. I know I am. But he anticipates our question. Well, if we're not going to take revenge, then who's going to stop this evil? Are they just going to get away with it? He says, no. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. He's the judge. We don't have to scheme to get someone back for what they did because eventually they and us will answer to the Lord for what we've done. He implores us 
to live in peace as much as we can, as much as it depends on us. Look, we can't make other people get along with us, but we normally stop at, that person said something mean to that me, so I'm cutting them out of my life. Or we normally stop at, hey, look, I tried. I tried, and they didn't want to do it, so it's done. But as Christ followers, we have this example, this guy Jesus, right, who exercised self-control, who taught us and showed us to turn the other cheek, who chose to forgive even the worst of things. You know, it's really hard to argue with someone who does not argue back. And I got to tell you, this is a hard lesson for me. It's something I continue to struggle with. I, I am often too easily angered. I am too easily offended. My wife and I joke around about the vendettas I have held against people, sports teams, and large corporations. But Paul here encourages us in two ways. He goes, number one, perhaps, perhaps there's a, an approach, a posture of the Christ follower that can turn an enemy into a brother. And second, if they can't, if that doesn't work, vengeance isn't up to us. God will handle it. See, God is better at it anyway. He says, leave room for God's vengeance. It's almost like saying, if we do it, then God won't. So if we want real justice, if we're really that upset about the injustice, let God handle it. He'll do a better job than you will. And I have to admit, if I'm trying to carry out justice, there's a problem. Because, you see, I'm not always right. Sometimes I'm just mad. Or sometimes I'm blaming someone for something that I did. Sometimes they might be guilty, but my punishment is far worse than their crime. I'm a terrible, terrible judge. I'm just not qualified to take revenge. But there is something we can do when faced with injustice. It's not to be the judge. It's, it's a shift in how we see those who persecute us. And i, I got to tell you, it, it really resonates to the better parts of me. Here's how Paul puts it. Verse 20, he says, On the contrary, don't take vengeance, but on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And I got to tell you, a couple things hit me hard. One's this, he goes, sometimes the evildoer in your life, the evildoer in your life, they're just hungry. They're just thirsty. They're just lonely. They're just neglected. And the only reason that you're experiencing them as evil in your eyes is because of some lack. And here's the thing. According to Paul, according to Romans, they're lacking something that you can do for them. They're lacking something that you are the solution to. And it says, when you treat people like that, when you love people, when you overcome evil with good, uh, you can wake them up. That's kind of what that expression, pouring hot coals on their head or burning coals on their head. That's not meaning that you should kill people with burning coals. It means it's almost like a splashing cold water in their face, waking them up to the need to repent of their behavior. Because here, here's the way conflicts really get settled. They don't get settled by uh, people taking revenge and then they get revenged on back and then revenged on back and then revenged on back. That's how wars start. That's not how conflicts get settled. 
Conflict gets settled when, when people in the, in the conflict repent of their evil, when they try to understand each other, when they fight for peace. Have you ever had a conflict that got settled by your enemy or you ramping up the attack? It's not how it's done. I mentioned before that I've been known to carry judges and hold vendettas against major corporations. One such company for me uh, was Rustoleum. And it was a silly thing on my part. Liz and I uh, used to live in Vernon Hills, not far from here. And we worked at the TGI Fridays. And it was walkable from our house, but it was much more walkable if you could cut through Rustoleum's property. And so if we, they, had, they had like a corporate uh, area there, and you could walk across their grass and through their parking lot, and it would cut like six minutes off of our walking commute. We had one car that would break down all the time, so lots of times we were walking to work, right? Or Liz was like, we should walk more, so we walked to work. That kind of stuff happened. And so we used it several times, and I, you know, look, I was always just getting to work on time. And so one day we're on the way to work, and their security guard's like, hey, you can't walk there. You got to go around. And I'm like, did you invent grass now? Does Rustoleum own the world? All right, there, big paint. Come on, right? And we walk around and we're late for work, and now I'm annoyed. And I'm like, you know what, Rustoleum? You've made yourself an enemy. And I had a vendetta against Rustoleum. Ask my wife, this is a true story, right? Um, and I got mad, and I was like, you know what? I'm never buying any Rustoleum products. They, they did not seem to notice. Um, about five years later, I was working on a project for our old church uh, up in Antioch. We uh, were painting all the fire hydrants in town. There were 650 fire hydrants, and, and the town used to pay $30,000 to get them all painted. Well, we organized a bunch of youth group kids from several churches, and we painted all the fire hydrants in one day. But we need to get the specialty paint to go on the fire hydrants. Guess who makes that paint? Rustoleum. But I'm like, Phew. someone's like, hey, we could ask Rustoleum to donate the paint. I'm like, you don't know them like I know them. <laughs> they make people walk around. They're terrible. They're just a bunch of corporate fat cats at Rustoleum, right? And they're like, how about I ask anyway? Like, you don't have to be involved. I'm like, whatever. But when you get burned, don't come crying back to me. I know what Rustoleum's all about. And uh, two weeks later, we got $5,000 in free paint from Rustoleum. It was like burning coals on my head, right? I was confused by Rustoleum's behavior. I wasn't quite done with them, though. I thought maybe there was some rogue good person inside of Rustoleum. A few years later, as we were finishing this building and we had, did not have two nickels to rub together and we needed to paint some stuff around here, I found this email from a guy at Rustoleum from way back in the day. And I said, Hey, we're doing this project here. And two weeks later, he sent us $3,000 in free paint burning coals on my head. And now, now I think Rustoleum's a great company <laughs> who care about people and their communities. And I choose them whenever I can. This message is brought to you by Rustoleum, right? Now look, it's a silly example, but they made peace with this idiot by overcoming my evil with their good. And I know, they didn't even know what was going on. But because they chose to do good, I laid down my vengeance, and now I'm like, you know, those guys are great. We can do the same. In fact, we're designed for it by God. It's what comes out of someone who's a Christ follower. 
Because here's the thing. Remember this part. You know how God thinks about those evildoers? He loves them. He loved us when we were evildoers. He loves us when we do evil now. He doesn't just love those evildoers. He wants them. He wants them for his kingdom. And his plan to reach those evildoers is us. See, the early church didn't win over against Rome with combat. They won over with compassion, with service, with love, with sacrifice, and generosity. There's a famous story of the city of Caesarea Philippi in the 4th century. It was a city that was racked by plague, and the officials in town took off because they could. And the, the people who ran like Zeus's temple, the pagan temples, they got out of town, right, and let the people suffer till the plague was over with. They were just going to let them die and suffer. Do you know who stayed? The church. The church served people and ministered to people and fed people and saved lives after lives. And, and one of the quotes that came, it said, the things the Christians did were on everyone's lips. And so Rome, who had oppressed the church, now saw the church in a new light. They're like, these guys aren't just an irritating subculture. They're people who heal and bring blessing and are generous and brave and courageous. And the relationship between Rome and the church, at least in Caesarea, changed. And many, many people who had been enemies of the cross, enemies of the church, became brothers. God wants all of us, even those that we think of as evildoers. You see, here's the thing about us as the church. We, sometimes we experience persecution and we go, how are we going to defend ourselves from all of this evil around us and protect what's ours? That is not the mission of the church. We're the offense. And our weapon is love. Our weapon is generosity. God puts us in the middle of these evil situations and uses us to love people who are far from him so that they may no longer be far from him. Now look, I know, I know that there are people in your life and, and I know if we were sitting here all together and I said, how is this going in your life? You would tell me a story about some terrible person that you tried to love and over and over again it was terrible. I get it, right? Look, there's, and there are places for boundaries, but I want you to hear that from the Lord. He says, as much as it depends on you, live at peace. Our first play, our first posture is love. Our approach, our strategy is to overcome evil with good. That's how Christians overcome injustice. Not fake, I'm better than you good, but real compassion. Earnest desire for peace and for rescue acknowledging that we are no better than those that we call evildoers. And who's our great example? Of course, it's Jesus. What did Jesus do? He came doing good, right? He healed people and he fed people and he cast out demons and he stood up for the oppressed and went up against broken systems. And what did they do to him, right? They tortured him. They mocked him. They crucified him. And even though he clearly, I mean, anybody who can make bread for 5,000 and walk on the water and calm the storm, a couple of Roman soldiers, not a problem for him. But in the face of that injustice, he loved, he forgave, 
He laid himself down as a sacrifice. And so that many of those people around that day, many of those who carried out the crucifixion, came to be called by his name. Not because he fought against them, but because he loved them. Now there will become a time for ultimate justice. There's a time when God's going to set all things right, and people who, who put their mark against the Lord and say, we're in, are committing to evil and the devil's ways, they will have a day of judgment. But that day is not today. Today is a day when we serve as the offense, when we love those who are against us. I know there is so much division in our world, in our country, even in our church. But our first move is to say not, how can I prove that I'm right? Or how can I defend my turf? But how can I love someone who I perceive as an evildoer? How can I understand someone who is doing something that I, I, I abhor? How do I treat that person with love? I, I'll tell you, that's going to be a hard road, but it's the road marked out for us. It's the one that Paul gives us advice for. It's the one that Jesus modeled us to. I want you to take a minute right where you are, and I want you to just kind of bring to mind maybe some situation where you are feeling that persecution, where someone seems to be against you and bringing evil. And I want you to take that situation and just, and just hand it up to the Lord and say, Lord, how can I love this person? And, and maybe there's a boundary that still needs to stay there, but maybe it's just in your own head saying, how can I pray for this person? How can I want good for them? Even if I can't be in the same room as them, how can I be, how can I be good for them? How can I want that? Because that, that's a gift we give to our own hearts. And I, I, I pray that you would just release that situation. That, look, I'm doing the same thing this morning with things that I've held on to a long time. Lord, let us be, let that be true of us at New Hope. Let it be true of us as individuals that we would respond to persecution with love. Let that be um, the, the, the scuffed up elbows and knees of our Christianity. Let us love people well. And may we see your miracles in this, that you would turn enemies into brothers in the same way that you turned us from enemies of your cross to those that you call your sons and daughters. Let that be true of us here as a church. Lord, we love you. We trust you. We thank you for this hard teaching. Let us respond to you by obeying you because of our great love for you. We pray these things in the mighty and matchless name of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you so much for worshiping with us today. Now go outside, make a snowball, and throw it at someone in your house. No, I'm just kidding. May God bless you. Have a fantastic Sunday.